I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss the most hotly contested First Amendment question of the week, namely, does the First Amendment protect racist speech on college campuses? On March 10th, the University of Oklahoma expelled two students after a viral video showed them leading members of the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity in a song whose lyrics included racial slurs. In a letter to the two students, the president of the university, David Boren, explained that they were expelled because of your leadership role in leading a racist and exclusionary chant, which has created a hostile educational environment for others. Uh, Boren also severed ties between the university and the fraternity chapter, forcing the frat to close. Uh, a recent YouGov poll suggests that 57% of Americans agreed with the university's decision to expel the students, and 59% agreed with the university's decision to close the frat house. But our question today is not a political but constitutional. Does the First Amendment protect the speech or not? And to discuss that fascinating question, are two superb constitutional scholars, the leading First Amendment thinkers in the nation who have been illuminating about the Oklahoma case. Eugene Volokh is Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law, where he teaches free speech law and a First Amendment amicus brief clinic. He is the founder and co-author of the invaluable Volokh Conspiracy, a leading law blog. Kent Greenfield is Professor of Law and Law Fund Research Scholar at Boston College Law School, where he teaches constitutional law He's the author of The Myth of Choice, The Failure of Corporate Law, and a contributor to The Atlantic, where he wrote an illuminating piece about this case. Eugene, I'm going to start with you. You have argued that under current First Amendment law, the speech of the students may not be prescribed. Can you walk us through precisely what the First Amendment says about hate speech and why this hate speech, in your view, cannot be prosecuted? Sure. Uh, so I think there are three basic points uh, here. First, uh, the First Amendment protects all viewpoints. It includes racist viewpoints. It includes sexist viewpoints. It includes uh, religiously bigoted viewpoints. It includes anti-American viewpoints. Uh, uh, um, and... Uh, uh, that's been well established, and there is no exception for racist speech. There's no exception for so-called hate speech, a term that, of course, is uh, uh, used quite broadly and uh, quite, uh, and uh, defined quite rarely. Uh, so uh, the the First Amendment is viewpoint neutral. It requires the government to be viewpoint neutral, uh, and it leaves uh, speech protected even when it expresses an evil viewpoint. Uh, second point is that generally speaking, there are some exceptions when we're talking about things, for example, in class assignments or something along those lines. But generally speaking, uh, First Amendment extends as much to university students uh, uh, as it does to to ordinary citizens. Uh, so a university generally can't expel a student because the student is saying things that are unpatriotic or is advocating crime, generally speaking, or is saying things that are anti-Muslim uh, or anti-Mormon or anti-Catholic or uh, anti-black. And the third point is there are exceptions to the First Amendment, to be sure. There are quite narrow exceptions. Uh, one of them is for threats. And one question that has arisen here uh, is whether uh, the, the song, which you recall was sung by fraternity members, two other fraternity members on a bus, uh, 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 that um, 
whether that song's reference to uh, to uh, uh, hanging blacks uh, uh, is a threat, and uh, the answer I think is it is not. And uh, uh, one way of thinking about it is just to imagine somebody comes up to a police officer and says, "I'm going to kill you." Uh, that's a threat. Uh, that would be punishable threat. In some situations, if somebody posts uh, something on Twitter saying, I, tonight I'm going to go and kill some some uh, police officers, uh, and especially if he gets more specific about what uh, uh, which ones are where, uh, that would be a punishable threat. On the other hand, let's say that uh, somebody at some party uh, is uh, singing, and singing like he means it, uh, uh, Cop Killer, the song that Ice-T made famous. And he sings, I'm about to dust some cops off. A cop killer, it's better you than me. Die, 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 pig, die. Fuck the police. That's I'm quoting here from that song. Uh, and then he's, he's recorded singing this song. And some police officers see it. Is that a threat? I don't think that's a punishable threat at all. Uh, likewise, if somebody comes up to, uh, just to take an example of my own ethnic group, uh, Jews, if somebody comes up to a Jew and says, I- I'm going to kill you, uh, that certainly is a criminal uh, threat, whether he wants to do it for anti-Semitic reasons or not. On the other hand, let's say some people are reading the Hamas charter, the charter of the group that runs the Gaza Strip, uh, and it is uh, uh, the charter is expressly anti-Semitic, and not just anti-Israeli, anti-Semitic, and it talks about how at some point Muslims are going to have to kill Jews. And they're talking amongst each other about this and uh, talking about that passage and saying, well, you know, I think that's what the Quran tells me to do. We're going to have to kill some Jews at some point. And then that somehow video recorded and uh, is uh, seen by, by Jewish students on campus, uh, uh, that is not a punishable threat. Uh, so uh, there's no doubt that there are some exceptions to First Amendment protection, uh, just I think none of them apply to this particular speech. Thanks very much for that uh, introduction. Kent, um, I, I know you have argued in the Atlantic that First Amendment law should be changed, but I want to see whether you agree with Eugene's description of the law as it currently is. Do you agree with his statement that this video would not count as a true threat under current case law? And I'm just going to add to the mix a recent post by Howard Wasserman of Florida International University College of Law, where he talked about true threats uh, in the Virginian Black case, where the Supreme Court defined it as occurring where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group and the speaker has to direct the threat to a person or group of persons with the intent of placing the victim in fear of bodily harm, generally face-to-face encounters are required. Do you agree, uh, therefore, with Eugene that this video would not have qualified as a true threat? I think it probably under existing law does not constitute a true threat. Um, with, with, the, with the possible caveat that you know the context matters, if, they, if the bus had been pulled up in front of an African-American frat house, for example, and the context suggests that they were aiming their um, uh, this this ditty about lynching uh, at at a, at a particular discrete group that might that might come out differently. But I, th- I think and and then let's also say that there's you know, the court is considering this term, the question of of um, uh, internet threats and and Facebook postings that 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 might be considered threats. And, and there's um, there's a bit of an open question uh, about whether um, the threat has to be um, intentional in a, an objective sense, whether the, the individual making the threat needs to intend the threat, or is it subjective, whether a subjective person in this situation would have received it as a threat. So, so I think, but I think Gene's 
probably right on the threat front, um, most likely right on the threat front, especially as a predictive matter. If this case got to the the current Supreme Court, which is very protective of of, of offensive speech, you know, like the like the uh, God hates fags case from several years ago, um, uh, that 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 this this court would protect it. Where where I think um, the doctrine probably uh, might be pushed if I were if I were arguing for the university in court right now, where I would probably base my argument would be something like you know something along the form analysis that educational institutions have an obligation to make sure that their educational institutions do not um, um, do not constitute a hostile educational environment, and there are some kinds of speech. That can, that can um, be evidence of hostility, much like in sexual harassment law, um, hostile work environments can be proven uh, in part by reference to speech that uh, goes on in the workplace. And I, I know I know Eugene uh, disagrees with this line of First Amendment law uh, and thinks that in some cases uh, sexual harassment law is, is unconstitutional under the First Amendment. But I think under current, at least the current assumptions defining this area of, of law, um, you might pre do a, um, make a pretty good argument that, um, that, there's, that, that the university is within its rights if it bases its argument on the avoidance of a hostile educational environment. Great. Uh, Eugene, um, uh, Kent has raised the question of whether this was a hostile learning environment for others. President Boren also used that phrase as further justification for the expulsion, pointing to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, as, as Kent mentioned, you're a critic of uh, harassment laws and argue that they clash with the First Amendment, but can you just tell us descriptively how have lower courts treated the claim that racist hate speech on campus constitutes uh, a hostile environment? Sure. When it comes to a hostile environment uh, in the workplace uh, and the application of uh, harassment laws uh, to that, uh, uh, courts, uh, when they have considered this First Amendment issue, and they've only rarely done that, are mixed. It is indeed the case that some courts have said there's no First Amendment problem here because the workplace is for working and there's a captive audience in the workplace and it's not really a forum for public debate. And other courts have said, well, no, at least it's to certain kinds of speech and certain kinds of context. Uh, uh, hostile environment harassment law cannot be used to punish such speech. But when it comes to universities, if you look at the way that courts have dealt with this, uh, they have uh, uh, struck down campus speech codes and actions restricting uh, student speech, including ones that are framed using uh, the rhetoric of hostile environment harassment law, in part because they say, well, this isn't just like a normal workplace. Uh, the university is a, uh, uh, indeed a place where people should be free to express all views. It's not just a place that's there for working and people should just be able to come there and not be exposed to offensive material. It is a place where people can say things and can debate things even uh, when, when it is offensive. On top of that, uh, uh, one of the arguments that is classically given for, uh, uh, for uh, restricting uh, hostile and harass uh, excuse me, um, speech that supposedly creates a hostile environment in workplaces, the captive audience argument that, well, the workers are there and they can't help but hear or see what their coworkers are doing. Here, it's the opposite. Here, uh, the, the speakers were trying to keep it relatively private, and it's only the fact that somebody, unexpected to them, uh, video recorded it and distributed it more broadly 
broadly that made it uh, uh, that that uh, led to the punishment. Um, uh, relatedly, one argument I've often heard as to why hostile environment harassment law is uh, constitutional is that well, it's not enough to just have, for there to be just one incident. It has to be a pattern. It's got to be severe or pervasive. And in fact, there are quite a few cases that say that uh, uh, that it takes a, a considerable amount in the workplace to make hostile uh, uh, to make uh, offensive speech uh, uh, into something that's actionable under the hostile environment uh, harassment theory. Here, it's basically just this one incident. Uh, so I, I don't think the hostile environment uh, rationale applies here. But let's just step back a bit and see just how far how far the movement to restrict speech has gone. Uh, that apparently, if somebody simply expresses things where he thinks he's expressing it among friends, expressing them off campus, albeit in an activity that's, that's attended by, by fellow students, then the mere fact that that is learned about, that somebody learns about it uh, uh, afterwards, uh, it can lead to an expulsion. I mean, imagine that this wasn't on a, on a bus. Imagine that somebody wrote a racist letter to a newspaper. Imagine somebody joined a, um, a racist political group, or for that matter, a political group that harshly criticizes, as I said, or expresses uh, hatred and hostility towards Catholics or towards Mormons or towards Southern Baptists or, or towards Muslims. Under this rationale, the very fact that they have expressed these views off campus means that this creates a hostile environment on campus. Uh, uh, and if that's true, then really, once you express those views, you, you can't go to any university because any university will now have to expel you because your very presence, coupled with people's knowledge of your views, creates a hostile environment. Have we really gotten to this point where people are talking amongst themselves? They have to worry that uh, their expression could, if a video recorded, lead them to be expelled from a public university? That's a pretty, pretty powerful restriction on speech and pretty powerful restraint on debate. If I could just, if I could ask uh, you, Kent, to flesh out Eugene's interesting point. He notes the way that digital recording and the internet have challenged the boundaries between public and private. This was course, speech on a bus, and we're not quite clear uh, who exactly recorded and who posted it. But just to, to push Eugene's point a bit, say that this had been speech inside a dorm room, and it were surreptitiously recorded without the people's knowledge, uh, and then posted. Would that that might be the basis for an invasion of privacy suit, according to the Tyler Clementi right. case, where the guy committed suicide when uh, someone recorded him in his dorm room without consent. Uh, would that it, matter? And if this had been surreptitiously recorded, do you think that would make it uh, less easy to, to prosecute as a... Yeah, as it, a might, it, might, it might make a difference, right? That, that would certainly be a harder case. And, and at least in Massachusetts, uh, which is a two-party consent state, uh, uh, recording somebody without, the, without their consent would be problematic. But I, I think Eugene, though, is... Is um, is talking about the slippery slope in ways that are, aren't quite uh, correct, and, and given the facts on the ground here, you have you have a bus on a, a officially frat, um, officially sponsored frat event. They clearly weren't trying to be demure in their views. They were shouting, and they knew they were being recorded. They could see the the phones um, uh, video videotaping at at the moment. So it's not it's not quite that they're they're um, sitting around their their kitchen table talking about race relations. They're they're shouting about the lynching of their fellow students. You know, I, I'm curious to the, I, I'm generally genuinely curious to uh, to hear. Whether the, uh, from Eugene, whether it would be different if, if these had been employees, of, you know, admissions officers of the of the university, uh, sitting around on a bus to a to a, to a, an event, and if they had been chanting this, whether that whether the 
um, the First Amendment would protect them from being fired, I, I, uh, or if the if the, if the chant had had named a specific person, um, a fellow student, even though the student wasn't there, whether whether that uh, the students would would still be protected. Good, good uh, question, Eugene. What do you think about that? Uh, so, so first of all, uh, uh, just just stepping back about uh, uh, about this being on a bus and not being a demure conversation. Let let me just uh, uh, imagine that there's somebody who's about to go to University of Oklahoma and who says, "Look." I have a lot of views. You know, some of those views may be offensive to people. Um, but I want to know, what is it that I can safely say, and under what circumstances can I safely say it to my classmates, maybe to my classmates uh, uh, on a bus uh, sponsored by the fraternity, maybe at a party in my dorm room, whatever else. Um, uh, is it, see, you say, well, this wasn't demure. Well, is that the test? Demure speech is protected, but if you say something non-demurely, you can be expelled? What well, of is course, it that I'm free of course, to say? That, that was not what I was saying, that that was the test. I was well, just saying that but you were saying that, it, that, that, the, that the analogy is to someone sitting around in the privacy of their own dorm room or their own home, and it's not, well, and, 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 and I'm, you know, the, so the, obviously What's the, the, the difference test is between, not, a, between a party on a bus and a party in a dorm room. I mean, let's say it isn't just over dinner with one or two friends. Let's imagine that there's a party and people are loudly talking about how they think that Southern Baptists are uh, are uh, hateful, awful people, and the world would be better if they all burned in hell. And you know, the sooner the better. And maybe maybe it wouldn't be bad if someone got them there uh, got them there earlier. Or somebody again at a party is is uh, saying uh, something similar uh, about uh, uh, it doesn't even have to be a racial group. It could be police officers. It could be capitalists or whatever else. Uh, what, what is it that people are, remain free to say? Now, if the answer is you can't make threats about specific people, to pick up on a point that you mentioned, I think that's right. And I think there is a good deal of case law that does distinguish situations where there's a particular person being named, which makes, the, makes something look much more like a clear threat. Uh, again, like in Virginia versus Black, if somebody is burning a cross on somebody's lawn, or for that matter, I think, saying in a message, I, I think we should kill so-and-so. Uh, and something where somebody's talking much more broadly about a whole class of people. But in any event, if you're going to set up this regime where people have to fear expulsion because they're expressing views about race, about religion, or about, about killing and the propriety of killing more broadly, I'd like to know what that rule is. I'd like to know what it is that students should feel free to talk about and what it is that they should know basically means the ruin of their educational career. Well, and I think my point that I was making in the Atlantic was that under current First Amendment law, the fear of not knowing where the contours of the rule is does not, um, uh, does not match up well with the fear of people um, who are targeted by speech like this, that, that sometime in the future they're going to be victimized either uh, by violence or by discrimination. So, I mean, I think if what my my point is with regard to uh, whether the First Amendment law is uh, doctrine and interpretation is perfect or not, is that I think existing First Amendment law does not adequately take into account uh, the fear of of the African American students in at, at Oklahoma, for example. So you say in your Washington Post piece that that you d didn't think that. Um, that any listener would take would have taken this as a threat against him or her, 
and I'm not so sure that's true. I, I think that it's probably right that nobody um, uh, thought it was a threat in in the same way that a cross being burned on your front lawn is is a threat in 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 terms of of immediate threat. But it's certainly the case that if if you if you're an African American student in Oklahoma and see this um, this video, you know, that you are um, you are going to be uh, at risk of something bad happening to you um, be, because of this kind of racism on your campus. And I, and, and so, my, um, I I, th I think the you know as you, as you said early on in your uh, in today's podcast that you know the 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 First Amendment says that um, uh, the First Amendment protects all viewpoints and it does. But there's also um, whole categories that, that of speech that get lessened First Amendment protection, and, and threats are one of one of them. And I think it's it's odd, isn't it, that um, a threat aimed at a specific person is not protected. But if you expand that group to a whole set of individuals uh, who are identifiable and discreet, that it that it becomes more protected. Oh, I don't the, think that's the, odd the, at all. The, broad, the, the, broad, the broader the threat is. Eugene, let me let me pose Kent's uh, this this exchange is great, and just to uh, pose it this way, the rule that Kent is arguing for is one that Facebook has largely adopted. This video could not have been posted uh, permanently on Facebook because Facebook this week announced new community standards, saying that it removes hate speech, which includes content that directly attacks people based on their race. And it defines direct attacks uh, broadly. It says that organizations and people dedicated to promoting hatred against these protected groups are not allowed a presence on Facebook. So obviously, Facebook has the right to adopt these standards because it's not bound by the First Amendment. But do you think that public discourse suffers by the fact that Facebook has adopted a rule that allows the kind of banning of hate speech that Kent is arguing for? So I, I think that uh, public discourse might suffer some, in some situations might benefit some. Uh, I think that the line, though, between the government uh, doing things and private entities doing things is an important one and one that needs to be preserved. Um, if you think about it, if, if Facebook tomorrow were to say, you know, you we're just going to take off Ice-T's cop killer. Uh, if anybody posted, we're going to take it off because we don't think that uh, people should be free to talk about violence towards police officers any more than towards racial or religious groups. I mean, after all, we see, we've seen in the news that uh, uh, police officers are sometimes uh, attacked precisely because they're police officers. We're just against violence. Or more broadly, uh, if somebody, uh, somebody says things that, uh, that let's say, uh, support, uh, uh, say, good things about ISIS or good things about Hamas, or if somebody, for example, wants to post the uh, Hamas cover, Covenant, uh, which again is ex quite expressly anti-Semitic, uh, you know, we just don't want to host this stuff. I do think that private entities uh, are not covered by the First Amendment, and I think there are good reason, uh, a good reason for that, for that to be the case, among other things, because there are lots of other places that people can switch to, uh, lots of other hosting services and such uh, that people can switch to really with relatively little burden on their lives. I don't think that, a, that the government, either government acting as a police officer uh, or uh, gov government university, should be free to say, hey, if we hear that you are singing cop killer at uh, a, a fraternity function or at a party organized by your, your uh, students group, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, we'll, we'll expel you. Uh, and again, I think we'd, we'd say something very different. I mean, we may disagree with Facebook's decisions uh, if it chose to uh, ban songs like Cop Killer. 
particular, but I think we'd say this is something that's within its uh, authority to do. I think there is a very big difference between what the government, acting as educator uh, or a sovereign, uh, is entitled to do uh, and what uh, what private entities are. Now, one question that came up is about public employment. Public employment is an interesting uh, an interesting thing, where in fact, actually, public employees really are subject to very substantial uh, restrictions by and large, in part because they're 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 uh, they're getting a salary and they're being hired specifically to do a particular job, and sometimes things that undermine their ability to do their job uh, are things that that could lead the employer not to want to fire them. But again, do we want to impose the same rules on students in our un- universities? Uh, for example, if somebody uh, uh, at, in a, um, uh, at a, uh, a government uh, uh, organization, uh, let's say uh, National Institutes for Health or Center for Disease Control, says things that uh, uh, people uh, think are kind of scientifically illiterate, well, they could be fired for, for being bad scientists. Uh, should we also have the same rule for expelling students? Seems to me it's quite right to have the rule that the courts have settled on, which is that the government as educator is much more restrained than private entities are, or that the government as employer is. So, so let, Rick, let me, Rick, let, Ken, Ken, let, Ken, let me let me flip it. As you can certainly respond to Eugene, but he, he's he's endorsed the ability of private employers to be able to adopt a rule like the one that you yep. advocate for. Uh, what, what's the argument against your rule? The Supreme Court in the Phelps case said that even hate speech might be of public concern and part of the meaningful debate of ideas, and that basically it wasn't up to judges. Uh, or deciders yeah. to figure out what the public should be interested in. And I get that. And, and, I, and I actually think that the Snyder case, the, um, the Westboro Baptist Church case, was probably rightly decided, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it was uh, about horrible hate speech. And here's, here's the difference between that case and, and this situation. Which, and, and it goes to this long-standing, long, a long strand of, uh, of, of Supreme Court precedent that, that takes into account forum the differences uh, among uh, different kinds of forums. And I, I would argue that, ed, like, like Eugene says, educational um, institutions are important. They're, uh, public, public institutions are, are run by the government and are subject to First Amendment constraints. But I think because of the difference in educational uh, institutions, um, because of the, the, the purposes that educational institutions serve, that different rules might apply to them. Uh, and still be consistent with the uh, First Amendment's dedication to a full and wide open, uh, robust debate. I don't think anybody w- um, with a frontal lobe would mistake what was happening here with, with debate about race. And in fact, uh, some of these, this kind of speech, when occurring in an educational institution, I believe is um, uh, silencing rather than conducive to debate. And so just like um, uh, sometimes First Amendment um, law uh, prioritizes the interests of listeners. I think in educational institutions, um, they, they, can, they, um, they should prioritize or at least weigh in the balance the interest of uh, listeners because some kinds of speech disables the educational uh, mission of the institution. So, so in, in a way, this is the, 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 um, the argument would be uh, merely analogous to the, 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 to the, to the public official um, argument in this limited context, which is that um, just like public officials have public obligations, they're, they're receiving benefits from the government, and in exchange for that, there's some 
baseline obligations to not engage in certain kinds of speech, the same argument can be made in an educational institution. This educational institution is offering a benefit. Um, uh, the students who went to the University of Oklahoma sign on to a, um, a code of conduct, and they they understood that those were the con uh, those were the constraints that was that were that this government benefit was uh, was conditioned on, and and uh, certain kinds of speech, advocacy of violence against your classmates. Um, uh, speech that, that advocates, especially speech that advocates violence on the basis of protected characteristics are so undermining of the educational um, uh, mission of the university that the, I believe that a university administrator would be within his or her authority to say, look, that goes beyond the pale. And Eugene, is your, uh, please respond to Ken, is the response that uh, the speech is not silencing or that uh, it doesn't matter that it's uh, silencing because uh, the First Amendment trumps and, and are you drawing a distinction between and when would it be different if it were in the classroom as opposed to on the bus? I want to have a sense of how broad your argument against sure. Kent is. So there I think are three separate issues here. Uh, one is, well, shouldn't the university be able to restrict speech because it's sort of a specialized community and it's trying to uh, educate people and, you know, they didn't have to come to the university. Yeah, that's exactly the argument that was made in the 1960s and early 1970s trying to suppress radical left-wing speech. Uh, speech that incidentally often had uh, overtones of uh, proposed violence as well. Uh, certainly communist advocacy and some radical, uh, um, uh, uh, other radical advocacy on the left certainly made no bones about their notion of violent revolution and possible violence in the meantime. And the Supreme Court expressly rejected that, I think quite correctly. I'm quoting here from Healy v. James, 1972, which involved a leftist group, Students for Democratic Society, where the court said, where state-operated educational, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, the court said that uh, uh, the precedents of this court leave no room for the view that because of the acknowledged need for order, First Amendment protections should apply with less force on college campuses than the community at large. Quite to the contrary, the vigil vigilant protection of constitutional freedoms is nowhere more vital than in the community of American schools and especially of colleges. That's specifically what the court said, and I think it was right then as to the left, and it's right now as to racists. Uh, and uh, if it's, however, if that's changed, then we have to recognize this isn't just going to be racists uh, uh, who are punished by this. It's going to be a wide range of people who have dissenting views, and I don't mean dissent necessarily as a positive. Often the dissenting views are bad views, but some of them are going to be bad views, some of them are going to be good views, some of them are going to be in between, and a wide range of speech is going to be suppressed. There's no way that this can be limited to, uh, to, to, to this particular category of speech. Second question is, what about silencing? I often hear this argument. Well, speech that tends to silence, in the sense of tends to discourage people from uh, the, themselves from speaking, uh, is, should be punishable because we want to have more speech in the aggregate. There's a huge amount of speech that is not just silencing, but is deliberate deliberately uh, silencing. For example, the common um, uh, calls for boycotts of people who express certain views, for example, express anti-gay views or express racist views, that's silencing. It certainly is intended to discourage people from express those views, expressing those views. The common use of insults such as racist or homophobe against people who, for example, somebody, it's routine that when people speak out against illegal immigration, they're condemned as racist. That certainly has a silencing effect because most people don't want to be 
labeled racist. So as a result, they won't say such things. May in fact be intended to silence. But uh, uh, yeah, but but of course we rightly protect such speech uh, because that too is part of public debate. Uh, and uh, to say uh, so to say that speech can be restricted once it's seen, once it's labeled as silencing, uh, and silencing in a quite indirect way that it makes people scared uh, uh, and less likely to speak in completely different fora than the one where the speech took place, uh, that, that's opening the door to a vast, vast range uh, of restrictions. Uh, and the last point is about how this speech is not a val valuable contribution to public debate. I surely agree with that. I, uh, certainly, uh, the particular, particular statements here were not terribly valuable. But the Supreme Court has, again, routinely, uh, and I think quite correctly, recognized that, uh, uh, that if you try to ban vulgarities, if you try to ban epithets, the consequence will be that you'll that it's that uh, there will be bans on broader expression of ideas as well. It's noteworthy that the president of the university didn't just say, "Well, what's wrong with these people is they were saying things that uh, that just didn't have much political import." He said, "What's wrong with this is they were expressing racist views." The message is perfectly clear to people who go to University of Oklahoma now, which is regardless of whether your views are uh, are detailed or or just uh, uh, just kind of uh, a brief uh, brief insult regardless of whether you think your views are rationally supported or not, if you express views that are seen as racist and exclusionary, you will be kicked out of, off of the university. That is a serious uh, interference. That itself is the silencing that I think we should be worried about. So, so Great. Let, let Captain, in, your, in your Atlantic piece, you did, you did argue against the slippery slope that Eugene just raised. You said, yeah, yeah the slippery slope is so slick that we can't fathom any restrictions on the worst speech, does it really risk tyranny to expel a couple of racist punks? Make your argument, please, against the slippery slope. Yes, I think I think the the, the notion that that there's no foreseeable way to stop uh, the courts from from uh, if we restrict this, we allow this expo uh, these students to be expelled. There's no conceivable way to stop then uh, courts from uh, from upholding the expulsion of of, of campus radicals arguing for. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, public ownership of, of, of means of capital. That, that's just demonstrably wrong. Most, um, or at least many Western democracies do indeed restrict this kind of uh, hateful, threatening speech based on, um, uh, uh, on race or sex or religious status. And those, those democracies don't, um, don't slide, therefore, into tyranny. There's, there, there, is, there are um, uh, lines that one could draw. One could draw the line at uh, advocacy of violence. One could draw the line um, uh, based on um, the form that educational institutions are special and that when, when speech is aimed at discrete groups within those educational institutions that advocate or at least express indifference toward violence toward them, that, that, that the nature of the form would uh, would uh, would subject that speech to some kind of punishment. There are lines that we can come up with. We are not so obtuse that that, and the First Amendment need not be so simplistic that we cannot uh, that we would uh, not be able to draw some lines. So it, it, it's it's interesting that we're 
wondering uh, whether there could be a slippery slope, and I think we're missing just how much slippage there's been. Uh, let's say that back in, I don't know, 1980 uh, or so, when people were first starting to talk about hostile work environment harassment law, this analogy that's being brought to restrictions on speech in workplaces, people would say, look, if you were to have hostile work environment harassment law, then what's that's what, uh, and therefore people couldn't say say insulting things to their face in the workplace. What that means is that one day, when some students of a university are going to be singing some racist songs on a bus, uh, just amongst themselves, uh, and then that is videoed and disclosed to the university, that's going, they're going to be expelled for that. I think people would, some people would say, and I know some people did say, oh, that's ridiculous. What kind, what kind of slippery slope nonsense is, is that? Of course we could draw the distinction. Look at all the distinctions we could draw. First, it's not the workplace, it's the university. Second, there's no captive audience. These are only people talking amongst themselves. Third, hostile environment harassment law requires severe or pervasive, so usually many incidents. This is just one single incident. Uh, you could draw those lines. It seems those lines, however, are not being drawn. And in fact, people are urging that the lines be rejected. Of course, lines could be drawn. The question is whether they will likely be drawn and likely to be drawn successfully. And here's the second point. The analogy being given is to all those European countries. Well, that has, the European restrictions on speech have not been limited to threats. They have not been limited to epithets. Uh, Brigitte Bardot, for example, has been uh, prosecuted and, uh, and convicted of making non-epithet-laden, non-threatening violent statements about her view that France is, is, to quote, invaded by an overpopulation of foreigners, especially Muslims. Now, that is, I think, a religiously bigoted statement. It's not a view that I would share, certainly about America. But there's, this is a big part of public debate in France, whether it's good to have a lot of immigration, whether it was, was good to have a lot of it, good to have more of it, whether we should have more of it from Muslim countries or not. Uh, and yet, under these very same European regimes that I hear praised not just by Kent, but lots of others who are saying, well, let's make American free speech more like European free speech law, uh, this slippage has very much happened. It hasn't been limited to threats. It hasn't been limited to epithets. To give another example, Bernard Lewis, who's a very prominent uh, historian, was uh, prosecuted and convicted in French court for supposedly denying the Armenian Holocaust uh, because uh, uh, he, uh, cast, uh, he expressed doubt uh, that some of the killings of Armenians by the uh, Ottomans during World War I were indeed uh, uh, specifically crafted as genocide. You can debate whether, he was, uh, whether what he was saying made sense or not, but it surely wasn't a threat. It surely wasn't epithets. And again, if I think somebody had, around the time of Holocaust denial, had said, look, one of the most prominent historians of, excuse me, around the time that Holocaust denial laws were enacted, had said, look, one of the most prominent historians of, uh, of the Muslim world would be prosecuted for expressing his interpretation of what happened to the Armenians in 1915, people would say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous slippery slope argument. And yet the slippage has exactly happened that way. Kent, uh, please respond if you uh, could to Eugene's point about Europe. It's true, as he says, that France and Germany ban Holocaust denial as well as blasphemy and hate speech more generally. Discuss the, the Je suis Charlie situation of the French in a bit of a bind on the one hand allowing the regulation of hate speech and, and, and then objecting to the, the terrible violence uh, that uh, it inspired. Um. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think I, I do not think that um, that 
in advocating or, or in uh, arguing in favor of the expulsion of these students means that uh, I'm not a fan of Bridget Bardot, you know, uh, or, 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 or that, I, that I think that, um, that uh, the, uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, in Paris is, is acting uh, inappropriately and inconsistent with public discourse. But I think the so I think what Eugene and I are both saying uh, in in a way we're arguing about uh, which way the slippery slope uh, falls and I think and and what whether that slippage is inevitable um, and also I, I I think that when we talk about what harm counts in First Amendment law I think Eugene uh, points out and rightly so that there will be some cost likely. Um, if we restrict the speech, because who knows, it's, we're going to restrict the speech of the, pers uh, the prospective Oklahoma student who, who is not absolutely clear about whether he can uh, gleefully uh, cheer the lynching of his fellow students. Yes, that's going to be some cost. Some, some uh, dapper white man will not be able to, uh, to, to shout with, with joy about the potential lynching of his, of his classmates. Yet at the same time, if we allow this kind of, of punishment, and I think, by the way, it, the, the scale of punishment matters in, my, in this balance as well. The expulsion is not like a criminal penalty. Um, and, but I, I do think that the, what I would advocate for in, in First Amendment law is that the harm that comes from this kind of speech ought to matter too, as well as the, um, the sense of those targeted. And under First Amendment law, I think it's, um, uh, it, it generally um, matters more what the speaker intends with regard to the threat, with, re with, uh, with regard to the intended harm that's, um, and the imminent, imminence of the threat. But you know, First Amendment law, again, need not um, be that lack, uh, lacking in nuance. It could take into account what, um, what the, um, the other hearers of this um, uh, are, are, are feeling and whether they are feeling like that they are uh, under attack. Now, one, th one thing that I think that this is a, uh, there is some factual um, uncertainty that Eugene and I are both talking around about the nature of what, uh, what this event was and what happened on the bus. And I think uh, that might affect, you know, how we think about it. Did, did these students really think this was a private activity, or should they have thought? And I think this is probably more likely. Um, should they have thought that that this chant, seeing that they were being recorded, would have seen the light of day? Does that do, does that or should that affect the uh, the analysis? I tend to think that it that it might. All right. Well, this is an absolutely fascinating and vigorous debate, but it is time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Uh, Eugene, uh, you both agree that uh, the First Amendment as currently interpreted does not allow the punishment of this particular speech. Please tell us why you think that that is a good thing. I think the Supreme Court has started in the 1960s with an experiment, an experiment in very broad protection for a very broad range of ideas, including ideas that were seen as un-American, anti-American, uh, associated with them, some of the most evil movements, uh, such as communism. Uh, and uh, uh, that experiment, I think, has 
largely succeeded. Uh, yes, it's true that communists are free to speak. Yes, it's true that pro-Al-Qaeda and pro-Islamic state forces are free to speak. It's true that racists and sexists and people who have all sorts of opinions about all sorts of religions are free to speak. Uh, blasphemy is protected. Uh, and I think that that has proved to be a pretty successful uh, effort. At the same time, the Europeans have uh, have tried to restrict speech and uh, um, uh, expressing various views. And you know, uh, I, I don't think that the result has been has been uh, tyranny there, at least not yet, and I hope never. Uh, but I don't think the result is superior to the American model either. Uh, certainly, it's not that there's somehow some race, racism-free paradise. People who are racist still express their uh, uh, express their views, and these are uh, people who are anti. I might say still express uh, uh, their views, their attempts to suppress that. I don't think the attempts are particularly uh, are particularly successful. I think that uh, that uh, uh, what we have here is we have a situation where uh, uh, extremist views, evil views, good views, views that one generation are seen as evil and the next generation are seen as good, and vice versa, uh, are all can all be freely expressed in America. And I think that on balance, this has worked out quite well uh, for us. And if we start if we start changing that, if we say, oh, no, no, let's just make the narrowest possible exception, only racism, only racism. Well, what about harsh criticism of uh, Muslims? Oh, well, that's kind of like racism. Oh, what about harsh criticism of Mormons because they're supposedly anti-gay or themselves racist? Well, okay, I guess that has to be punished too because otherwise the, the rule itself would be religiously bigoted. What about it calls for killing police officers regardless of race but based on their uh, uh, on their uh, uh, their uh, professions or not exactly calls for doing that but speech that kind of uh, makes light of that or seems to indirectly approve of that all of that will become on the table all of that through a process of called censorship envy where some groups once they see others speech being uh, uh, being censored will want will actually once they see speech that others find hateful to be um, being censored will want to have their own uh, th their own uh, 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 the speech that they most dislike censored as well. That will happen too, and that's that's not just speculation. That's the reality of the way that these processes operate. I, I don't see much upside in that, and I see a lot of downside. And I think that the current regime that we have, for all the evil speech that it allows, is on balance a more successful one. Thank you so much, Eugene Volokh. Kent Greenfield, although you believe that the First Amendment, as currently construed, protects the speech in question, you believe that is a bad thing. Please tell us why. I don't think it would be a bad thing in all circumstances and in all contexts, but I think it was bad in this situation and in this context. The First, the first Amendment has long um, allowed for the, um, the articulation of lower categories of speech, the uh, lower meaning that there's, they're, they're subject to lower levels of First Amendment protection, libel, defamation, threats, obscenity, what have you. And I'm simply saying that, that the definition of those categories do not necessarily uh, uh, create a slippery slope to greater um, uh, regulation. And I, in this context, given the educational form, given the fact that it, it was a threat against a discrete and identifiable group um, of violence, um, and that the listeners uh, of, of the speech, to the speech, uh, could be seen, that, that the harm to them should matter in the First Amendment um, analysis, that I think the, the University of Oklahoma president should have been within his 
power and authority to expel these students. And my, my, it, 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 at base, I think the question turns on um, what do you think the First Amendment is for? I don't think it is just uh, for the libertarian notion, to serve the libertarian notion of that everybody gets to say whatever comes into their mind. I think the, per, the First Amendment serves a purpose, and the First Amendment serves the purpose of the exposition of ideas and the, um, the conduction of uh, public debate. And uh, I do not think that this kind of um, uh, racial hatred is consistent with or conducive to that public debate. And I do think that there are manageable and um, articulable uh, lines that one could draw so that we could avoid falling down the slippery slope. Thank you so much, Eugene Volokh and Ken Greenfield, for an unusually vigorous, engaging, and electric debate in the best tradition of the First Amendment and of our great NCC podcasts. Please join us for the next of our We the People podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.